0: This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Imperative Entertainment Pick a little picture.
2: I first dabbled in bringing people across, not as an avocation, but something that just sort of came upon me, in about 1989.
0: What came upon Eldon Kidd in 1989 were two Hispanic teenage girls, stowaways in the back of his rafting tour van, along with their one-word plea, Ayúdanos, help us.
2: Well, they were uh, probably 16, 17 years old. I found out later that they were traveling from Guatemala and they were with a group. When you sign up for a group like that, you don't have a guarantee that you're not going to be hassled sexually or bullied. You never know. And they feel almost as if they own the people until they pay at the other end.
0: The group, as Eldon calls it, is actually a method of traveling that migrants choose when attempting to cross the border illegally. It entails many people making the journey together, in theory, creating safety in numbers. But in this case, in the group with the two teenage girls, the opposite had occurred.
2: They may have been abused by the group leader, but more than likely, from the other participants. They were dirty, disheveled, had one change of clothes and uh, looked pretty frightened. At that point, my Spanish was a work in progress, but I gathered from them that they were being mistreated. They saw the California license plate and just hoped and assumed that that was a vehicle going north. They threw caution to the wind, Hail Mary Pass, This has got to be better than what we're in right now. I was trying to communicate with them. They were afraid of me, of course. We were camped out in the middle of of the desert. I always felt safest to go to a microwave tower or sleep in a cemetery because they are, they have uh, certain taboos and suspicions about those places, so they're safe to go when you're traveling. So they didn't like the idea that it was a microwave tower, and that scared them just as much as I scared them. But I didn't talk to them much. I just gave them a blanket, said, well, we'll talk about it in the morning.
0: The next morning, Eldon went to find a phone to call the number that had been written on the older girl's hand.
2: There's no cell phones. Had to wait to go to a place where you can make a call. Generally, someone's house. And it says, larga distancia. You pay them some money, they make the call for you.
0: The phone number was for a residence in San Jose, California. It was the girl's father, who was relieved to hear their voices. He asked to speak to Eldon.
2: The father pleaded with me, can you bring him up? to the border, at least bring him to the border. I agreed.
0: The plan was that Eldon would pass the girls over the border and bring them to his house in Riverside. Their father would then drive down from San Jose to pick them up. Simple. And that's how it came to be that Eldon Kid found himself driving north towards the U.S.-Mexico border, two frightened teenagers in tow, about to knowingly commit his very first felony. Yet, he wasn't nervous.
2: When I brought them across in El Paso, Texas, the border was on the left side of the bridge and we just went on the right side of the bridge. It was that easy, just walk across. They would basically look at the face of each person, not necessarily single file. They just let almost anyone walk across at that time.
0: A day later, Eldon pulled his tour van into the driveway of his family home, the two strangers still in tow. He explained the situation to his wife Janice and introduced his children to their new guests.
2: We arrived at my house in Riverside October 30th and my wife dressed them up as some kind of characters and they went trick-or-treating and they turned back into children. It was very refreshing to see that.
0: The following day, the girls' family arrived and Eldon witnessed a family being reunited, their pure, uncut joy, reunited because of him.
2: I actually left the price up to their family When they came to retrieve them from San Jose, they gave me a thousand dollars. When people are brought across the border, for me, one of the most rewarding times is when you see them reunited with their family.
0: But when that altruistic high had subsided, Eldon had another thought.
2: I thought, well, that was awfully easy money. In fact, I made just about as much on bringing them over as I did my whole mosquito-bitten tour, so it gave me the idea, can I do this again somehow?
0: This is American Coyote. I'm your host, Andrea Lopez Villafana. In our second episode, Eldon begins to dabble in the trade of people smuggling, and he'll recruit some help along the way. Despite the thousand in cash Eldon made for transporting two teenage girls halfway across North America to be reunited with their family, not to mention the warm feelings of heroism that came with it, people smuggling wasn't on Eldon's radar as a serious way to make ends meet for his family of seven. At least, not yet. I didn't feel
3: different from other families growing up. I always had everything I needed. I had a, a normal social life. I maybe didn't have brand name clothes, but that was taught to us that it wasn't important. But I always knew that I would always be fed. And I remember my dad saying, you will never be hungry. If I have to kill the neighbor's dog to feed you, you will never be hungry. <laughs> but you guys drink so much milk around here, I gotta I gotta go work.
0: That's Eldon's oldest daughter, Eileen Kidd.
3: But he wasn't around a lot, that's for sure. He would be home for maybe two days and then gone for two weeks. Gone three weeks, home for three days. Sometimes as long as a month. So when he would return home, it was a big joyous occasion, but you kinda had to re-get to know him ag- again and figure out your place. So I would step down as my surrogate parent role when he would come home. And when he would leave, I would become a little bit more of the boss again, in my mind, in my childhood mind.
0: For the most part, Eldon's work came from his size, strength, and insatiable appetite for adventure. American West and Mexican jungle rafting tours and various long-haul moving jobs were an ideal fit, but also grueling.
3: He had to be creative and be seasonal with his type of work. It was so many different things, tour guides, but that also made our childhood life very colorful because he would bring us along on these trips with him, and that's where you bonded with him.
0: Eldon's third son, Nathan Kidd, remembers his father's various odd jobs fondly as well.
4: We were always involved in some sort of, I don't want to say family business, but we were involved in some of my father's different business endeavors, one of which was collecting creosote, which is uh, a tree that grows out in the desert, has a very distinct smell to it. I think they use it to preserve railroad ties and things like that. And I guess there was some trendy health application. We drove out somewhere, I think, in the, the high desert, and we had a pair of, you know, strong scissors and, and some baling wire, and we went and we collected creosote and tied them up in bundles, and it went to some trendy health and wellness place or something like that. So he was always experimenting with different ideas. I think my, my dad has a very creative mind, and he sees opportunities that a lot of people don't. Uh, Just because of the way that he's wired, I think he also is just, he's a a mover and a shaker. Whatever contacts you made, you had to just kind of roll with it and see where, where it went.
0: One of those contacts even landed Eldon one of his more memorable gigs. A spot on the legendary game show, American Gladiators.
1: Eldon Kidd will be going against Gemini. Nitro will try to brace Three, himself two, against Rick one. Herbst.
0: Eldon performed extremely well and went all the way to the finals of that season's tournament before being disqualified for breaking the rules.
4: Elden, what's your reaction to that? Um, that rule wasn't clear to me from the start. Maybe I was a little rough. I'm sorry. And evidently the decision has been made. He has been disqualified from his third and last attempt.
0: But with that constant grinding need for income and his aversion to working a nine to five job came other less legal schemes.
2: My second main source of income at that time was stealing ducks from local parks and ponds. A duck was valued at five bucks. I sold them in downtown Los Angeles on Broadway Street. I would wear a park ranger uniform and I would ask the park manager, I'm here to relocate your ducks to a better place. And I had a special trailer. I'd put them in the trailer, take them directly to 707 Los Angeles Street and sell them to the Chinese. And from there, I guess they went to a better place. Not necessarily being able to afford a duck dinner myself, I used to chuckle inside thinking of those rich people eating a mud puddle duck that I caught that afternoon. I also got in trouble with that several times. I went to court. My lawyer always said, what's the value of a duck? It was hard to establish who does the duck belong to, no one knows, so I always got let go. But it was my living, a great part of my living for uh, probably a year until my wife put her foot down um, because there were too many newspaper articles about the situation and starting to get famous and people were driving by the house.
0: One headline from a San Diego area newspaper read, Who's Stealing Miramar's Ducks? In the article, the local lake ranger is interviewed, saying in a fantastic moment of prognostication, quote, the only thing that ever got the ducks before were the coyotes. But even when he was stealing ducks, the idea of passing people over the border for a fee was never far from Eldon's mind.
2: After a little research, I found out that the price to go from Tijuana to Los Angeles was $250. So I was thinking, all right, that's 25 ducks, and all I have to do is just bring one across. So I was comparing everything, the price of what I did to the price of a duck.
0: It's almost comical. The casual nature in which Eldon approached this career change. But that's what it took. A little research, a little math, and before long, Eldon had himself a brand new and highly illegal way to make some money.
3: Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good. Companies like Bank of America, which just earned the Just Capital seal. Bank of America is ranked number one for ongoing commitment to their workers with initiatives like Sharing Success, which awarded 97% of their teammates additional compensation, nearly all in stock. This is the program's seventh consecutive year, awarding more than $4.8 billion in total. Visit justcapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business.
0: Furnished by Just Capital.
3: What companies would you want to work for? Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good companies like Bank of America, which just earned the prestigious Just Capital 2024 seal. Bank of America is ranked number one in the banking industry and number one for their ongoing commitment to workers, offering best-in-class benefits, including a minimum wage of $25 an hour by 2025. Visit justcapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business. Furnished by Just Capital.
0: Before we dive into Eldon's transformation into a coyote, smuggling migrants as his primary form of income, it's important to understand what the U.S.-Mexico border was like at the time. A brief history of the border in the latter half of the 20th century begins in 1942 with the Bracero Program. This program allowed millions of Mexican agricultural workers to migrate seasonally into the United States over a 20-year period, to make a living for their families, while satiating America's industrial needs for cheap labor.
5: Farming is America's biggest industry. All such farm jobs, which are tough, dirty, or unpleasant, are generally referred to as stoop labor. It isn't easy to find men willing to take on such undesirable kinds of work. The American farm labor supply falls short and is supplemented by Mexican citizens. Braceros. In Spanish, this means a man who works with his arms and hands. The big question in many minds is, why Braceros?
0: Yet unsurprisingly, many American companies took advantage of the cheap migrant labor, not only abusing the Bracero workers, but also hiring illegal workers in much larger numbers than those allowed under the program and Mexico, meanwhile, was suffering from a massive labor shortage as a result. By the early 1950s, more Mexican nationals were crossing the border illegally than legally, leading the Republican-led government to take extreme action. And so, in 1954, in collaboration with the Mexican government, the Border Patrol and the Justice Department launched massive militarized sweeps through major American cities, packing migrants onto buses, planes, and ships, and sending them back across the border, often under deplorable conditions. In one incident, over 80 braceros died of sunstroke while being apprehended and then left in 112 degree heat. In this single coordinated effort, estimates put the number of people deported anywhere between 300,000 and 1.1 million. But there's no disputing that it was the largest mass deportation in United States history. The program was called Operation Wetback, and despite its racist name and controversial methods, the program's defenders still have a voice in the immigration debate we're seeing today.
2: Let me just tell you that Dwight Eisenhower Good president, great president, people liked him. I like Ike, right? The expression, I like Ike. Moved a million and a half illegal immigrants out of this country. They moved a million and a half people out. We have no choice.
0: After this dark moment in modern American history, the U.S.-Mexico border received, surprisingly, little attention over the next three decades, and the Bracero Program was formally ended in 1964.
1: The Bracero Program was replaced by continued importation of labor, just unauthorized labor, and that, to some extent, became a national political issue in the 1980s, culminating in the 1986 Immigration Reform and Control Act.
0: That's Peter Andreas, a professor at Brown University. Both of political science and in the Watson Institute for Public and International Affairs,
1: it was supposed to be the solution to the migration U.S.-Mexico migration problem. It legalized, uh, gave amnesty to several million Mexicans, and was supposed to also lead to significant toughening of policing of the border. Policing the border really did not change significantly after '86, uh, but the unauthorized migrants who became uh, legalized actually provided a base for more migrants to come kind of through social networks and migrant networks. So the whole Immigration Reform and Control Act kind of backfired, frankly.
0: And this was the climate of the border by the early 1990s. The same amount of policing, but with more migrants able and willing to make the journey to America in search of income, family, or a better life.
1: What's fascinating is that Compared to today, the, the border itself was really minimally policed and was not high on the national agenda. It was rarely in the political spotlight and uh, didn't have a lot of agents along the border.
0: In other words, the perfect environment for an enterprising American Coyote to begin operations.
2: At that time, I thought, how am I going to do this with such limited Spanish? So I went to the border to do recon. At the entrance to the United States, there was a bank of pay telephones, and I was trying to be the big ear to hear who's trying to get across. I approached someone and I told them that I was an immigration officer with contacts and that I could get them across. The second two people that I brought across were some farm workers, and we basically just walked from the beach in Tijuana straight up to Imperial Beach, dressed as if it was a day at the beach, uh, surfboards under our arms, and just basically walked, played in the water, walked a little more, played in the water, right under the nose of the immigration service.
0: Over the next few weeks, Eldon repeated this crossing technique a few more times, quickly realizing there was no shortage of customers.
2: After doing this several times and adjusting my moral compass, I decided this is something that I could do to make a living. I enjoyed being outside. I enjoyed the water. I enjoyed the adventure. And so many things in my life up to that point prepared me for this kind of work.
0: Of course, it was only a matter of time before the Border Patrol caught on to the very recognizable six foot five beach boy playing in the surf with different groups of Mexican friends every week. Elton would need a new plan and some help.
5: Uh, I'm Tim Burriston. I was born in Utah in a, a town called Tooele. It was My mom was Methodist, my dad was, was Mormon, so there was constant battle. I remember, you know, having to put on the, the suits and the little bow tie and stuff like that, but then my mom was Methodist, so I was going to the Methodist church, but then someone had sex in the basement, so we stopped going to that church. It's true, that's true.
0: <laughs> like Elton, Tim Burson had grown up in a religious household with a Mormon influence. Yet beyond that detail... He and Eldon were nothing alike. Tim's parents had divorced when he was young. By 13, he was dropping acid and getting arrested by the cops for various teenage misdemeanors. By his 20s, he was a surf bum in the summers in Santa Cruz, a ski bum in the winters in Park City, and in search of work to support those habits the rest of the year. Pay, with a Utah-based rafting company called Holiday River Expeditions, was decent though you had to work a trip for free to get hired. And that's where Tim first met Eldon.
2: I met Tim in Green River, Utah. We were there to audition as tour guides. The audition consisted of us going down the Green River with the owners of the company and seeing if we could then land a job at the end based on our performance.
5: And Eldon had gone the year before and done that training trip the year before and then didn't get hired because I think he had four children at that time and they didn't take take him serious. So so he didn't get hired and he was really disappointed. So he actually went back that year to take that training trip again. He was going, you know, if they don't hire me this year, I'm going to cut those rafts loose. (laughs) That's kind of how he was. During the
2: trip, I felt like this was not for me. So I just sat back and I let all the other hopefuls bring me my food, wash my dishes, set up my tent, because they wanted to impress the boss. I thought, this is great. I'm just gonna have a great trip. There's no way that I'm gonna be this subservient and have a job here. At the end of the trip, it was uh, shocking to me and everyone else that I was hired and Tim was hired, and we were the ones that did nothing. It was very much an uproar in in the bunkhouse about that.
0: Yet despite their personality differences, they became good friends.
5: His family has that Mormon background. They're all drinking the same Kool-Aid, and they think the same things, and they don't question things. So we had that same kind of upbringing and background and, you know, uh, the masculine definition of what it was to be a man and, and do these things. So we
0: had that. After rafting together on a few tours, Eldon and Tim began their own independent rafting operation. In other words, rafting without a permit. It was their first hustle together.
2: When Tim got fired from the rafting company, he did have some skills, and I remembered him as being a funny, happy-go-lucky guy. So when I began my own rafting tours, if there's multiple boats, you need a guide in each boat. So I asked him, would you like to help me
5: with these tours? We rafted all over California. We did Idaho. We did Oregon. But it was really mostly that we just didn't want to have a a regular job. We just couldn't have a a a 40-hour-a-week job. So we were doing whatever we could to make money.
0: In the off-seasons, Eldon would bring Tim on to help with moving or construction jobs. Tim was even a sidekick to Eldon's duck-selling business. While it lasted.
5: He had shirts that had, you know, California Park Service patches on them and stuff like that. So we always kind of knew how to look like we were supposed to be there. We, we used to call it hiding in plain sight. And that's how we did a lot of stuff.
0: All of this history together made Tim Eldon's ideal accomplice for his latest hustle, passing people over the border.
2: He values his leisure time above all else. He's one of those guys that can live right down to the last penny. So he was always available. No full-time job, no obligations. He was ready to go. So that made it very attractive. I pitched the moving the people to him by you're going to be okay, you're on the other end, you're not directly involved. Let's go ahead and give this a try.
0: When Eldon called Tim with this offer, it was 1991, shortly after the first Gulf War. Tim was strapped for cash. Plus, his first marriage was on the rocks. He needed fast money.
5: Well, he knew my situation, so I had talked to him on the phone. And so he says, Well, come down, you can maybe help me do this. I'm passing some people and making some money. So I, that's what I did. And I brought my van down, and it was pretty nerve wracking for me because I was sure I was going to get caught.
2: He's been loyal to me for. 30 years, and there were some things in the coyote business that you just need some help, mainly logistics. If he could drive me into Tijuana with wetsuits and life jackets, then I don't have to take him in a taxi, and then I have a vehicle waiting on the other side.
5: So I had this 15-passenger van, a big white van. Very obvious vehicle. But I remember the first time we did it there at Tijuana, I just remember being behind the wheel, just going, this is it, I'm going to jail. I'm going down. And nothing happened. I made it through and made a bunch of money, so we just kept going. As a working, you know that you know you go through the week and you're working and you're complaining about everything and then at the end you get you know some money and it's like, oh, okay, it was worth it. At that time, if we made $1,000 a night, first started passing the people, we didn't have a clientele. We didn't have a group of people that were sending us people. So we would be in the tunnel where people were walking through to, to go to the United States, looking for people who were looking to pass into the country. That's what we did. And I remember we'd just be hanging out there during the day. Our operations were in Tijuana there, we got a a motel room and we were passing people. And sometimes we'd swim them around the, the fence there at the border, because we had all the rafting stuff. We had wetsuits, we had life jackets, we had everything. The procedure was we would get the people, we'd get a group of people. Then we'd go down to the beach and we'd change them out of their clothes. I would take all their clothes, all their belongings, put them in my van, then I would go through and drive through the gate at Tijuana. Pretty soon, I knew all the beggars there. I knew all the people. It's like, hey, what's up? How's it going, you know? And they're all interesting. You know, they're they're crippled, they're this, they're, you know, playing flutes and stuff. But I knew all of them. So I'd be waiting in the line, then Eldon would get the people ready to pass. And I would drive through to Imperial Beach, run down the beach with my surfboard, swim across the river and meet Eldon. And then we would take at night the people and we'd, we'd walk them down the beach. And sometimes there'd be the the border patrol would come down the beach with the quad runners. Like maybe three or four at a time with the headlights on. A Couple times we got spotlighted by the helicopters that were patrolling that beach there in the river. We'd kind of put the surfboards over us like this so you could just see the top. The helicopter would see us, but then nothing would happen. And Eldon said, well, there's something else happened. We, were, we weren't the big thing. Something else happened. They had to, you know, shift
0: the manpower. Over the next year, Eldon and Tim continued their operation, now as their primary source of income. And with each crossing, they were getting better and more confident. While Tim and the people he was passing over the border at that time made it, his marriage did not.
5: I was back and forth to Santa Cruz. And then also, I was on the phone with my wife, and I had 18 people in the van waiting to go through that secondary inspection. And she said, well, the marriage is over. I'm going, what do you mean?
0: Eldon's family, meanwhile, was thriving. And despite the illicit nature of his work, they were well aware of what he was up to.
4: It was always an open secret. It was nothing that my father ever had any shame about. He was always very open with the family and talking about it. He wasn't guarded in his speech when he was talking to my mother about any of the operations, you know. Didn't even feel like there was anything sinister or weird going on. It just it was very much normal my normal upbringing.
3: I remember being told the nobler side of it. I'm bringing families together, Eileen. How would you like it if your grandma that you love was far away and you could never see her? That's what I'm doing. I'm just bringing people's families together and it's a noble thing. And if I don't do it, someone else will do it. He said, these people are gonna come here no matter what. So if I don't bring them here, someone else will come and they'll steal their money and they'll disrespect the women and they won't be nice to the children. People know that they can trust me, that I will take care of their women, be good to their children, and I won't leave them high and dry in the mountains and steal their money. He said, so maybe we're a criminal family, but we can handle it.
0: Of course, all good things come to an end. And for these two amateur American Coyotes, it was only a matter of time before the authorities took notice.
5: We were at the beach, and that's where we had our headquarters. We had a motel room. And it was kind of getting to be a going concern because we were getting some references and people were calling us and contacting people. He was waiting
2: for me at the border to come over on the on the Mexican side He dropped me off with the life jackets and wetsuits and
5: decided to just look at the waves. I had the hood up on my van, and I was working on the engine. I was doing something, you know. Guy came up and said, you know, know, how much to pass? I said, well, Solo Brinca or Los Angeles? The brinca is the jump. The word means jump. So if you just go over the border and you dump them off, that's cheaper than if you're taking them into Los Angeles. It's more money to do that. So all of a sudden, handcuffs on my wrist, got handcuffed to the steering wheel, and and there's a police officer. It was a Mexican police officer. I'm thinking I'm fucked.
0: on the next episode of American Coyote.
5: I got punched in the stomach. I had a nice pair of sunglasses on. Those got slapped off my face. They're asking me questions and I i don't speak Spanish. I don't have any money. I don't, you know, I'm pobrecito. They took me into the bathroom. I was on my knees in front of the toilet. And I'm thinking, my teeth are going to get broken out.
0: Tim discovers the dark side of the Coyote business and Eldon learns how to adjust to an ever-changing environment.
2: I always changed my tactic a little bit. I wouldn't let it go stagnant.
0: American Coyote is created, written, and produced by Eli Chorus and Joshua Schaefer of Pegalo Pictures. Executive produced by Jason Hoke and produced by Andrew Richards of Imperative Entertainment and produced by Alvin Cowan. Original music for the series is composed by Joshua Klebe. Assistant editing by Max Drankpol. Sound recording by Nick Sinakis and Matt Stouter. Sound editing by Joshua Schaefer and Nick Sinakis. Sound design and sound mixing by Craig Plattey. Poster design and graphics by Jeff Quinn. Production legal by Sean Fawcett of Raymond Legal PC and Davis Wright Tremaine, LLP. Host record by Debra Reeves and Signature Sound in San Diego, California. Please subscribe, download, and share these episodes and follow us on social media for extra content and updates. I'm your host, Andrea Lopez Villafaña. Thanks again for listening.